Enter your code. Retinal scan required. Agent confirmed. Good morning, and welcome to Now Playing's Mission Impossible Retrospective Series, Mr. Hunt. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch and review each movie in the Mission Impossible series. Your team for this mission will be Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob. This mission will be dangerous, filled with top-secret plot spoilers and mild language. As always, should any member of your team be caught or killed, the Secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. This recording will self-destruct in 30 seconds. Today we're discussing Mission Impossible 2, starring Tom Cruise, Doug Ray Scott, Tandy Newton, Bing Rames, directed by John Woo. This is Dimitri, co-host of Now Playing. Who? Dimitri. I don't know who Dimitri is either. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I, I'm glad we'll have a discussion point on that because I was confused too. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't sure who I was taking this flight with. It's Stuart in LA, of course. And this is the bitch that's worth 37 million pounds, Jacob. I've been meaning to talk to you about that, Jacob. I'm sincerely worried about your health. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you've seriously inflated that. But hey, here we are, Mission Impossible 2. I wasn't excited about the first one, but this was a mission. There's no way. I would have accepted. 2000, all I knew, John Woo directed it, Tom Cruise in that hair, the ads for this. No, I wasn't going anywhere near this movie. Limp Biscuit, Limp Biscuit does the theme this time. <laughs> I didn't know that, but that would have certainly been a, an additional repellent. I think that's what I know more about. Now, I have seen this. I said I wasn't sure if I saw two or three. This is the one I've seen. It was background noise during like Thanksgiving. It was on TV. I didn't go to see it at the theaters. But yeah, I knew more about that Limp Biscuit video for this movie than this movie. And I was at the theater opening weekend. <laughs> I was excited for this movie. I like Limp Biscuit. And John Woo, I didn't think this movie would come. I thought when they did the first one, my honest thought is, yeah, that was a pretty good movie. But by getting Tom Cruise to star, he doesn't do sequels. I didn't think they'd ever come back for a sequel. It took four years. I'd given up hope. Well, it took four years because three of them were spent locked down with Kubrick in England. Yeah, that's exactly true. You can blame Stanley Kubrick not only for the abomination of a film that is Eyes Wide Shut, and not only for the delay of this, but Stanley Kubrick, through the butterfly effect, killed Duke Ray Scott's career. Because Doug Ray Scott was supposed to be Wolverine, after MI2. No, what Kubrick did was save the X-Men franchise. <laughs> yes, that is that is true. I read that after I watched this. I'm like, no, that's no Hugh Jackman. That franchise would be so different. No, he's horrible in this movie. <laughs> Everyone's kind of horrible in this movie, though. Yes, they are horrible in this movie. And I knew it at the time. I could smell it coming off of this one. I think this has the reputation of being the weak link of the four that have been released so far. I'll preview my thoughts now. I thought this was much better than the first. When you saw it back then? Yeah. Okay. Well, I would be curious to see if that holds true. But yeah, I had no interest in this. I didn't know much about it other than, yeah, it seemed that Tom didn't have a team at all from the advertisements. I was happy because I did see on the poster, the pre-release poster, 
Ving Rhames was coming back. That's all I want. Ever <laughs> since Pulp Fiction, I have worshipped the ground Ving Rhames walked on. If I could be anyone from Pulp Fiction, it would be Marcellus Wallace. Ooh, some bad stuff happens to Marcellus. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I mean, <laughs> did you did you like Ving in the first movie? I did. I actually did. He's a computer hacker. I was an internet tech. He's Ving Rhames. He's the epitome of cool. I liked him, and I was really happy that he was coming back. That honestly could have been a make or break for me on this movie. I knew they couldn't bring back Jean Reno, who kind of sucked in the last movie anyway, despite being an actor I like. But then he went on to make Godzilla. His, yeah, the professional. <laughs> I'll just stop there. But Ving coming back, that was important to me. And also important, John Woo. I mean, he really had a career peak in America around this time. I mean, I had seen Broken Arrow. I had seen Face Off. I really didn't like either movie, but I really appreciated. <laughs> All right, needle on the record. We're stopping for a minute. I'm so excited John Woo's coming. He's huge. He's made two movies I don't like. Well, I was going to say I didn't like those films. I mean, Face Off, I'd probably recommend it. I haven't seen it since theaters, but my memory is ridiculous but fun. Broken Arrow was ridiculous and not fun. But hey, it was the reunion of Christian Slater and Samantha Mathis since Pump Up the Volume. That's its only redeeming quality. There are some great cagisms in Face Off. It is a ridiculous film. But John Woo, I know, you know, I'm, I like kung fu films. He came from Hong Kong, did those action films. I've seen a couple of those, and he definitely has a style. You know, everyone jokes about the doves, but he was known as an action director. That first Mission Impossible, I don't, it's more of a spy film than an action film, but it has action set pieces. So I, I guess you bring in a guy who does action. I, I think there's a little bit of a difference between a spy film and an action film, but if that's the direction when they want to go, John Woo, that's his style. That's going to help. And that's what made me excited was his style. I think after Face Off, he became really popular in the pop culture, talking about the birds and his almost ballet style of action. Ballet of violence. Yes, that got a lot of play. I was in film school when this guy was hitting and yeah, Tarantino talked him up. A lot of Hong Kong directors were coming to America because it was being handed back over from the English to, to the Chinese. It was what's happening. We were had an influx of talent coming from Hong Kong, and he probably did have the biggest reputation coming in, which is strange that I am not a fan because I saw The Killer, which is the film that made his career, the one that they talk up as being his greatest film. I didn't like it. It's the only one that I have of his films I have seen. I thought it was ridiculous, and while I could appreciate the ballet of violence, sort of, I didn't really go with it. And so I never saw any of these American films. I saw Paycheck, because I had to, as part of the, <laughs> the Philip K. Dick series. I won't hold that against him. Everyone failed in that movie. <laughs> I know it's popular to recommend bad movies to torture you, Stuart, but I would love to do a review of Face Off with you. <laughs> I would too, actually. I would like to revisit it. I thought we were watching Face Off in this movie. There's a lot of faces being ripped off in this movie. It does feel like <laughs> Face Off 2 in many ways. I mean, the first one had it, but this one, they really do it. They overdo a lot in this one. We'll get into it. They've upped the tech. They added a computer chip to the throat, so you now can do the voice as well as the look. Thought that was nice. They overdid a lot in this movie. John Woo's original cut of this film, he went to the studio and was smiling and like, I'm done. 
three and a half hours. Oh, geez. <laughs> this, this is our, what? Already over two hours. Around the two hour mark. It's too long for me. I could not imagine a three and a half hour cut. Well, I have a theory. If you speed it up, I mean, so much of this movie is in slow-mo. <laughs> if you actually played it in the actual proper running length, it probably would only be 30 minutes long. So a three hour cut might be a 90 minute movie. <laughs> yeah, the studio just dug their heels in and said, we have to release a two hour film. And so cut, 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 he did. And we'll be talking about the release. Again, no deleted scenes on the Blu-ray, no director's cut revealed. So I don't know what was cut except for certain scenes from the trailers that weren't in the movie. Okay, interesting. Well, then I guess we better get into it. Arnie, give them the plot. We'll do Mission Impossible 2. IMF Mission Commander, played by Anthony Hopkins, has a new mission for Ethan Hunt's team. The commander explains that a deadly virus called Chimera and its antidote... Bellerophon, have been stolen by rogue agent Sean Ambrose, played by Doug Ray Scott. To recover these items before Ambrose creates an epidemic, Ethan must recruit Ambrose's former lover, a thief named Naya, played by Tandy Newton. The two fall in love, but Naya still agrees to go undercover and gather information from her ex. She is monitored by Ethan and his team, comprised of returning computer hacker Luther, played again by Ving Rhames, and pilot Billy. But wearing a mask to impersonate Ethan, Ambrose discovers Naya's duplicity. He uses her as bait for Ethan, so Naya injects herself with the deadly virus. And if she isn't given the antidote in 20 hours, her disease will not only become terminal, but also spread to everyone around her. Ethan tails Ambrose to a meeting with the head of a pharmaceutical company that will make billions selling the cure Bellerophon. And Ethan stops the trade, kills Ambrose and his goons, and gets the antidote to Naya in the nick of time. And with the mission accomplished, the IMF clears Naya's criminal record, and she and Ethan go off on a romantic vacation as credits roll. Oh, I want that cut of the film. That was so concise. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys, it's a love story this time. Oh, problem number one for me. This movie is going to hinge on us buying into this love story. I mean, the first 30 minutes, it's a romance movie. Well, it's to catch a thief. They actually even drop those words. It's a Hitchcock movie in which a retired cat burglar tries to stop a female burglar and they fall in love. It's it's a romantic Hitchcock movie. It's less of his thriller based and more of his like early romance movies. And I think, okay, that's great. We didn't get any of that in the last movie. We can all agree that while there might have been some vague inferences of sexual tension between the wife of the bad guy and Tom Cruise, it wasn't the movie. And here, this is going to be the movie. But asking John Woo to do a romantic Hitchcock movie is like asking <laughs> Michael Bay to like remake Top Hat, you know, some <laughs> Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire bullshit. You're just, it's not the right person for that. All right. But it takes a little while to get there. I mean, we start with fake Ethan Hunt. I mean, we get this scientist who looks like every scientist in every movie ever. Balding, white mustache, European accent. Yeah, with this weird voiceover, every hero needs a villain and in doing so recreated a monster. Am I watching? Is this a Marvel film? Like, it's such a weird intro to this film getting this voiceover and this scientist injecting himself with something. And then the laughable moment where he walks out of the building he works at and sees children inexplicably playing Ring Around the Rosie. Outside a metropolitan skyscraper where scientific research happens, and he sees them falling down and realizes 
that he's created something that could kill us all. I mean, talk about melodrama. It's a symbol. It's artistic. That song's all about the plague, children dying from the plague. Come on, don't you see the artistry here? I see it. I really do see it. It's there for everyone to see. And I feel like Wu uses broad strokes. He always has. Maybe it's a language thing. I don't think his English skills are particularly good. He would eventually go back to Hong Kong, and that's where he makes movies now. He really isn't a Hollywood director. This was a brief window in his very large career. So we get a lot of visual flourishes in this movie. And to me, you better like melodrama because it is heavy, heavy with overstatement. Yeah, he's calling to someone named Dimitri. And Dimitri is apparently Ethan Hunt. And he knows Ethan is an IMF spy who can help him get this disease and this cure safely to Atlanta. But why is he calling him Dimitri? Is that like a a nickname to Eastern European scientists? I presume they had an adventure together. I am presuming that, you know, if they did such a thing, which they didn't back in 2000, but if they had prequel comics or internet miscellanea that we would find out that Ethan and this guy worked on an entirely different adventure way back when. Keep in mind, Ethan's parents are in the pharmaceutical industry, and maybe there would be some familial ties, but he knows him by a code name. He doesn't know that he's Ethan. He knows him as an Eastern European. Man, that is an accent that Tom Cruise would not be able to fake with any sticker over his lyrics. <laughs> I was thinking maybe Ethan was doing some IMF mission where that was his name. That was his going under Dimitri that he was involved with trying to get whatever this monster they created was. But it just seems like he knows him and thinks his name is Dimitri. I guess. I couldn't tell if it was like a term of affection or... (laughs) Is is that like buddy in Russian? Yeah, I don't know. What's up, Dimitri? (laughs) I think what we're supposed to think, because it's opening here, we're supposed to think this is Tom Cruise. We know he's under a false name. So we think, like the first movie, this is going to be some sting where at the end of it, maybe it's not even an airplane at all. It's it's all a trap to get this guy and, and we'll be into a, a spy adventure that's fun. Instead, it goes really dark. Instead of Dimitri, instead of Ethan, what we really get is the villain. We get the bad guy impersonating the hero, impersonating Dimitri. <laughs> And you thought the plot for the last one was confusing. I was a little bit shocked. I mean, I watched this and realized Tom Cruise, the actor, was doing evil things. And even if it's supposedly someone else wearing a Tom Cruise face, either way, you have Tom Cruise committing murder. And so I'm like, well, he's going to let himself as an actor go to a dark place, you know, by playing his own villain. Eh, it's not that dark. I mean, we we see by the end of this airplane sequence, the latex is ripped off. What's funny is usually when that happens, it's supposed to be like a ta-da. I had a like, who's this guy? <laughs> I mean, it's not Anthony Hopkins. It's not a name we'll recognize. It's not a face we recognize. I I don't know Doug Gray Scott from anything. This is one of one of my many problems with this film. Wasn't there a James Bond film, like, where one of his agents that was friends, one of the Pierce Brosnans? Yeah, Goldeneye. Okay, Goldeneye. This is basically that same setup. We'll find out Ambrose is a former IMF agent, and there's supposed to be some history, I think, with him and Ethan. Like, we need that prequel moment. We need that opening scene where they're buddies and they're working together. They knew each other? I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, they say Ambrose, is the, he was the best one for impersonating Ethan. He knew him so well. And had done it a couple times in the past. But I don't get any, like, I don't get 
this betrayal with Ambrose. He's just a villain. I don't feel like this is some super dangerous guy because he used to be IMF. They don't set that up. It's just all of a sudden, here's this dude that might have been Wolverine at some point. I don't know who this actor is. Don't know what he's doing. There's no danger for me. I, I don't feel threatened. It's just a generic bad guy. If we had gotten the three and a half hour cut, I think there would have been a little bit more because listening to John Woo and his commentary about this film, he explains Ambrose's motivations. And I'm like, so that's what was going on? It's that Ethan was the number one IMF agent and Ambrose was number two. He wasn't good enough to be Dimitri. He's only good enough to go on missions when he's pretending to be Ethan. And so he's resentful. He's upset. He feels he's not getting his due. And so, you know, it's better to rule in hell than serve in heaven. So he decides to go rogue. And so that's kind of a Hong Kong cop trope, right? I mean, infernal affairs or maybe even face off. Like the idea that we have these twins here and that they're going to face off here. I, I, I guess that's what they're building to here. But funny enough, I watched this movie entirely not getting that they ever knew each other. I just thought they liked the same girl. <laughs> well, to be fair, we get it through Anthony Hopkins. And the Kit Ridge is gone. I like Kit Ridge. And somehow they got Anthony Hopkins for this film to be Swanbeck. I, I don't know. He's the British IMF boss or something. I'm not sure why he's showing up now. He's the commander. Kitridge is the director. So I would think Kitridge is like a politician overseeing the whole thing, whereas Hopkins is like the field commander. And who doesn't like seeing Anthony Hopkins? I mean, I'm not sure if he's not going to eat one of them. You know, I, I do wonder <laughs> if you're not going to get another Phelps relationship here. But uh, I always enjoy seeing him, and uh, we don't see him much. He, he's basically here in the beginning and at the end. And yeah, I would enjoy seeing him. I wish he would have acted or done something in this film. I like seeing him even in an uncredited cameo role. I think he has the gravitas to play this role as a mission commander. I'm perfectly fine seeing him in this piece. I can't remember if he ever comes back, but we'll find out. I don't think he does. But he's going to be the one to get Ethan to chase after Sean, because Sean has done a very bad thing. Not only did he get this virus off this scientist that was flying a plane to Atlanta. Actually, he didn't. He did not get the virus. He f***ed up. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's not complicate <laughs> it before we... Yeah, yeah. He thinks he does. Yeah, I wasn't even sure what happened here, so explain it. He got a bag. He got a bag <laughs> that was implied to hold the virus and killed the scientist, but he also killed an entire plane of people. Man, one year later, they would have never dared to release this. Or even now, I mean, with this... German suicide pilot that crashed into a mountain. I mean, that's basically what they're doing here. It's just a little too uh, close to home here. I mean, I remember the TV series 24 started with a similar scenario, blowing up a whole plane of people. Uh, maybe one time we were indifferent to that, but now uh, the bruises are still fresh. I just feel like, wow, this opening is a bigger grabber, really, than anything in the last movie. It's a good opening. I mean, that the plane crashes into the Rocky Mountains and all of this is going on on the plane. But not the Rocky Rocky Mountains. It wasn't the Colorado Rocky Mountains, was it? I believe it was, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if he's flying from Australia to Atlanta, yeah, he could have crossed them. Okay. I wasn't even sure where it crashed. Later on, I think Anthony Hopkins says it crashed in the Rockies. I'm like, those were American mountains? Okay. <laughs> That's what confused me. And he was flying from Australia. That's right. It was in Sydney. You give him a Russian accent. I'm just thinking he's flying from Russia. <laughs> 
I had to write down every location, too, to keep it straight. So, okay, got it. And it had been a while since I saw this movie. I forgot that wasn't real Tom Cruise. And so it was a shock to me rewatching this film when he goes, you keep calling me Dimitri. You really shouldn't. And then beats the guy up. It's a grabber of an opening scene. It really is. And it's all pre-credits. It's very short. And it sucks me into this movie right away. And then the next scene completely takes me out. (laughs) That hair. Never mind that Tom Cruise is actually doing the stunt work here, climbing these rocks in Moab, Utah. I'm just distracted by that hair. Well, he had that hair on the airplane. I was distracted by it when it was Dimitri's hair. That is true, but man. But when you see it flapping in the breeze, it does really drive it home. I'm more horrified that he decides a vacation. He's climbing a mountain without safety gear. Like, I hate, I hate when movies try to tell us the more someone lives dangerously, the cooler they are. I just think this is so ridiculous here. This artifice built around Cruz's ego gear in this opening, that he's going to climb the mountain. This is the same shit Shatner tried in Star Trek V. <laughs> I was thinking of Star Trek V, and you don't know the gravity of your situation, but I also do like this, that this guy lives in such a dangerous world, that to him this is a vacation. That I found kind of amusing. No, I'm Stuart, I'm siding with you this time. The last film, I like Cruz's cockiness. Here, it's like they've gone from Die Hard to live free or die hard in one jump where John McClane becomes like a superhero. Tom Cruise all of a sudden is like this acrobat flipping around on these rocks, jumping and catching himself. It's too much now. I I liked it when he was the smart guy. Now that he's like, he's going to be a ninja in this film, basically. It's going too far. Yeah, the ego is too big now. I just take it as we're watching a John Woo film. And so, yeah, we're going to see some of that going on. The other thing that I really liked about this mountain climbing scene, beyond the great camera work, because it's just a pretty place to be, and beyond the practical stunts of Tom Cruise, yeah, they digitally removed his harness, but he is really there, and had that wire broken, he'd be really dead. Seeing him perform these stunts in that vista is great. But what I also love, and it's just such a Tom Cruise callback, while he's doing all this, they're playing Ico Ico. Do you guys know Ico Ico? Yeah, from Rain Man. Yeah, yeah. I wondered why they were doing that. Yeah, I didn't like the music. <laughs> uh, I love Ico Ico. I've probably seen Rain Man 50 times. It introduced me to Ico Ico, and anytime I hear that, I think of the opening of that film. And so this brought me back to a good Tom Cruise place. I was happy with Ico Ico and to see him mountain climbing. And that he gets to the top and they fire a rocket at him with his mission. Yeah, they shoot a missile at him with sunglasses. This is jumping the shark really quick for me. Yeah, I would not accept this mission. I would let this tape blow up. I would walk out of the theater if this was a choice. You know, I have no choice here. I have to go through the whole series. (laughs) But I just know that we go into a place I don't want to go. I'm not saying this is bad. I can see that this is going to be some people's idea of great entertainment. It is well staged, as you pointed out. Real stunts, all of it. It's just obnoxious to me. I just hate this character so much, and it's just in my face. Everything's so capital C cool. It's just, it's grotesque. And I'm going with the vibe of cool. And I don't know if I would if this was a new movie today, to be perfectly honest. I have a residual memory of having seen this several times over the past 15 years, and that memory is tied with really liking this persona when I first saw it at the time, being impressed with what he's doing 
and the confidence with which he's pulling it off. I think you're right. I think we're on the verge of Tom Cruise becoming an actor that I can't stand. I can see the seeds of it here, but in this movie, it doesn't bother me. I'm enjoying just his charisma and screen presence during these scenes. I'd have to go back to Cocktail to find him in a more annoying movie. I love Cocktail. All right, moving on. Let's focus on the incredibly bad here. I mean, this is where he finds out he has to he has to put together a new team and there's going to be a civilian, a civilian thief, Naya, who he's got to go to Spain to recruit. Tandy Newton. Now, I'd seen an interview with a vampire, but she made no impression on me. She's in it? Exactly. <laughs> That's not where she's from. She's beloved. If you saw the Oprah movie. Which I don't see Oprah movies. She's in an Oprah movie? That movie's, it's strange. I'm not going to say it's great, but it's not uh, maybe what people associate with Oprah. It's pretty weird. I mean, it starts with her taking a saw to a baby. I've heard good things. It's on my long list of movies to catch sometime. But when it came out, promoted as it was as an Oprah film, I had no interest. But I didn't know she was in Beloved. But seeing her in this movie, wow, what a beauty, what a confidence, what a screen presence. I fell in love with her in this movie and knew she was an actress I was going to watch all the way to Norbit. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love Thandie Newton, too. I always feel like she's one of those actresses I always wanted to see do better, that they always just suffered under lackluster material where I felt like, man, they never did find the role that would really break them. They always tried to refashion her and they, they do it here as an old school actress like Grace Kelly. This is To Catch a Thief. She's the Grace Kelly. Later, she would do a movie with Mark Wahlberg, of all people, where it was she was supposed to be the Audrey Hepburn. And she can do that. She has that old Hollywood vibe to her. She has that Ability. Unfortunately, it's the movies that let her down, and this one certainly lets her down in the Seville dance of romance as she lifts a, a necklace from a hot tub or something. Yeah, I, I just don't see her charm, and that could be Cruz's fault. He is so annoying here, you know, when they're flipping around on the tub and getting on top. It's, again, why are they falling in love so fast? Like, this is going to be a serious romance. Have you seen her? I fell in love and I was a theater away. <laughs> nah, I just don't buy this romance. No, I don't see it. I don't buy the romance, but I do see the attraction to her. Yeah, attraction, fine. But this movie goes like they are deep, deep lovers that have been together forever. Oh, my God. That romance, I mean, Fast and the Furious wouldn't pull the bullshit that they do spinning around on a cliff edge. Thank you. I wrote that down. I, I've seen seven Fast and Furious films, and I'm not buying the bullshit spinning around cars in this one. I can't. <laughs> I love it. I love oh. it. Oh, so awful. Because Wu does it in the slow motion, I mean, everything's in slow motion in this film. <laughs> yes. The way people were dancing on the floor when they were looking at each other from across the dance floor, they're doing a dance with cars. I get it. It's a flirtation. I get it. Oh, we all get it, Arnie. It's, it's If you don't get it, they'll do it for 10 more minutes. <laughs> Until you must get it. Until there's nothing else to get. It's stupid, though. The fact that they're falling in love, spinning around in a car, looking longly at... I can't go here. I'm not buying any of it. I am. I mean, this is giving him a woman who's equal to him, who's willing to drive like he drives. He's, of course, the best because he's Tom Cruise. 
but she's a chick who can hang. Well, here's the thing is I think because these scenes are so terrible, she's playing him. Basically, he almost drives her off a cliff and she hops in his car and goes to bed with him. I think, oh, she's going to get him back. She's going to rip him off or she's got some angle here. She couldn't possibly think that this is romantic. Yeah, they even play up that angle. They sleep together. Ethan wakes up and looks around. You're like, oh, she's gone. She stole whatever. Nope, she's just laying there. They're madly in love because he almost drove her off a cliff. Yeah, it's crazy. And this is the hinge for the rest of the movie is that Ethan is so in love with her, he hates to see for her to play the role of being the lover of this other guy, this guy that they're chasing after. What they're really going after with her is not her thievery skills, but the fact that six months ago, she was dating Sean Ambrose. And that also works for me. If you go with this being a doppelganger movie, like we already said, you know, the light side and the dark side of the same coin. And Doug Ray Scott does have more than a passing resemblance to Tom Cruise. Really? Yeah, but they don't set up this doppelganger thing. That, that's what I'm saying. I needed a five-minute scene in the beginning where they were on a mission together and they got along and they were buddies. I don't see it here. Yes, I probably was in the three-and-a-half-hour cut. Okay, I'm asking for five minutes. They could have taken out a whole lot of slow motion and put in five minutes that would have helped this film's story. You know what? This is how Hollywood movies do shorthand, is that, yeah, people do dangerous things. And they're in love. I'll understand that this is what passes for romance in 2000 action movies. But what I wanted to see even more is why she left Sean. Did they have a falling out? We're supposed to think that she doesn't want to be with him because he's a horrible person that killed a plane load of people to get a virus that will kill more people. But why did she ever date him? What happened in the relationship to make her walk away? I do wish that there was some of that. But the fact that they had a relationship explains to me why she'd be attracted to Ethan. Because both of them are IMF agents. They're the best at what they do. They live life dangerously. She lives life dangerously. He kind of looks like Dogray Scott, although he's much shorter. But I think that's what happens is there's a similarity. She has a type and Ethan is that type. The type that almost kills her. Okay. Actually, she almost kills him. Let's be clear. She goes out of control, she drives and almost slams him off the cliff, and he ends up slamming her to save her life <laughs> from spinning off. Tomato, tomato. <laughs> yeah, who spun who out off the cliff? It doesn't matter. The point is, yeah, she's attracted to bad boy, reckless people, the kinds of guys that drive me insane in action movies. I hate characters like this. But yes, the fact that she has to pick between these two I say jump off the cliff. Don't take the mission. <laughs> yeah, but she does. She she has a conscience. That's what she struggles with in a very lengthy dialogue scene, but eventually decides she will play ball. She will pretend to be arrested and need the help of Sean. And again, I'm struggling with this too, because we're supposed to believe Ethan is like so pained that she's going to put herself in danger because <laughs> they've magically fallen. I'm not buying any of this. And that is a big problem. I just, it's lost to me in the first 30 minutes. And here I'm really into this and thinking, wow, she is going to go back there and she is going to have to sleep with him. And it's shown. He buys her a dress, makes her strip in front of him. I mean, she is really going deep undercover. No pun intended. <laughs> we haven't seen any IMF agent have to 
give their body in this way. It makes me like her more that she has that much of a conscience. And it makes me laugh at Anthony Hopkins. Like, we're not asking her to do anything she didn't already do. <laughs> if, if she hadn't slept with him previously, oh, that would be too immoral. <laughs> Again, I feel like Wu is a visual director, and this is conveyed largely. The dialogue is bad, and the acting is, and the delivery is even worse. I almost pity these people for having to say these lines. But it's about the visuals. And if you notice, he does this cool with a capital C. You can, to your own personal taste, decide whether it's really cool. But Tom Cruise, as soon as he finds out this is going to happen, he walks outside in the streets and they're burning idolatry. It's the bonfire of the vanities. Arnie, I got to ask, is this a snub on De Palma? De Palma, who was the director of the last film, his biggest flop, the thing he had to make Mission Impossible to get away from was Bonfire of the Vanities. And here, by sticking it in here at this movie, I have to think that's a dig. Maybe a little. Possibly. According to what I read, Tom Cruise himself invited De Palma back, and De Palma said he wanted to work on other projects instead, and so Wu was choice number two. Take that for what you will, publicity BS or truth. But yeah, there don't seem to be coincidences. I mean, Cruise is calling back to himself. He intentionally added the word risky to his own dialogue to call back to risky business. He's trying to be very self-referential here in ways that make no sense. Well, I'm glad you're admitting something doesn't make sense here. (laughs) Yeah, I'll tell you what also doesn't make sense is that he gets a team, two other guys to come around, basically to hang out in a shack. Like, what is this Aussie that comes flying in? What What is the point of Billy Baird? He's the pilot. Yeah, they need a pilot and a hacker for some reason, because Australia's big. <laughs> Why are they at the shack? Why can't he be across the street with binoculars? Okay, well, because, first of all, Ambrose knows Ethan very well, and the reason Luther's there is because they have this chip, this undetectable chip. That works with only one computer in the world. Yes, and so Luther is there to operate that computer. I'm guessing it's the one with the 686 processor (laughs) prototype that he got in the last movie. Okay. What's so weird to me is that this movie, okay, we've had the love story with Ethan and Naya. Now it's going to pause. I'm surprised that... Cruz let this happen with his ego. Like, he goes away for a while to sit in the shack Why we get, like, ten minutes of this slow-motion walk-up between Naya and Ambrose and the scarf flying off and catching it and wrapping it around. Like, he's like, get the GPS up, get the GPS. It's weird that, like, Cruz actually let himself just do nothing for a long stretch in this film. Where he's sitting in a shack trying to get the GPS to work. I get this probably on the page read is about a paragraph, but because <laughs> everything is in slow motion in this movie, it does take an inordinate amount of time to get going here. Keep in mind, we're supposed to be caring about a virus. And that's, yeah, I mean, that gets forgotten. I actually kind of enjoy these scenes. First of all, it allows us to explore the character of Ambrose. Up until now, we've really only seen him hijack a plane and kill people. What did you learn about him, Arnie? You learn his plot. You learn that he is in league with the head of a pharmaceutical company, the boss of the guy who created Chimera and Bellerophon. And truthfully, I know it's Greek myth, but doesn't Bellerophon sound like a pharmaceutical? It does. (laughs) If you have erectile dysfunction, use Bellerophon. Yeah, you find out plot. You're not finding out about his character. There's not any development of why he left. Oh, sure. He's cruel to more of his underlings. He gets to cut off the pinky of his right-hand man. Is his right-hand man jealous of Naya? Like, there seems to be a tension there. My Rorschach plot is that the right-hand man might 
be homosexual and a little jealous. No, I did pick up a vibe like that. Like, when Naya shows up... Well, it was the exact same plot in the Punisher remake with Travolta. Remember, there was a whole subplot there. Yeah. This did have some of those overtones, but that movie did come four years later. And I had forgotten what movie I even saw this from. But the term, you know, she wasn't exactly gagging for it when she left you. And he's like, but I am gagging for it. It lets me know he knows or is reasonably suspects she's a double agent. But he is so in love or in lust with her that he's going to risk everything for that. And that tells me he's a smart character, but ruled by the wrong impulses. Smart. Okay, these are wild accusations you're making here. (laughs) I don't feel like he's as smart. I feel like he's an evil person that wants to cage this woman and punish her. I think he refers to her as saying, I want to go for a ride before she gets turned in. I mean, he's not in love with her. He just wants to screw around with her before he throws her away. He knows very well, certainly by the time they get to the horse race, She has a long scene in which she lifts the camera card from his left pocket. Confirm! Left jacket pocket! They call it out so obviously. Confirm the pocket that it's in. Come on. They're setting us up. She returns to the wrong one. He knows there. I feel we get a lot of the information again and again. Yeah, because he says it out loud. Check in my right pocket. Everything is so obvious. And I think the reason why this movie is playing so much more obvious is because of the complaints of the last movie. Because so many people said, I couldn't follow what was going on. I feel like we're told again and again and again what Chimera is and Bellaphone is and who the hero is and the villain and what they know. I feel like, and the fact that it's in slow motion. I mean, you just can't miss the plot now. It's just crawling too slowly. It's an overcorrection for a movie that was whimsical and went through POV and sometimes glided over moments that we needed to see. Once we find out about Chimera and Bierathon, yes, they've slowed things down, Stuart. I don't understand this. I don't know. I guess they're going to poison the world and sell the cure to everyone. Isn't this what the Ninja Turtles reboot was all about, too? Like... That's the whole plan? Well, I mean, the original plan was to develop a cure for every flu everywhere. But in order to do that, yeah, the scientist had to create this bad disease. And maybe he caught wind of what the guy was planning. But yes, they want to set out basically a Captain Trips-like virus. And then they will be the ones with the cure to make tons and tons of money. And yeah, I've seen this plot before and since. Literally, about viruses and cures and diseases and cures. But I wish they drove it home by showing more than one scientist who we never see in his life dying from it. With really bad makeup effects. Like, I wanted to see him deteriorate like an Indiana Jones or something, but no, he just bleeds a little bit more. They imply that they've released it into the public. Like, there is a moment where masses of people die. Is it contagious? Yes. Okay, so that's what I thought. Like, that would be helpful to know. Yes, to see one person dying of it. It's not that scary. To see a whole community dying of it is horrifying. I mean, I'm frightened of viruses. It is something that truly does scare me. And I could be really into this plot more if I knew how lethal this was. But I feel like so much of the movies about the romance, we forget about this virus stuff. We forget about the ramifications of what's at stake. Wait, plus... 
Aren't Scientologists against pharmaceutical cures? Well, that's why they're destroying this one. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing is about Tom Cruise trying to rescue a medical cure. I don't think he's trying to rescue anything. I mean, he is. A, he's trying to eliminate it. Swanbeck, Anthony Hopkins character does tell him they want a sample of it. That, that was part of the mission was to bring some of it back. I'm not sure why. That never seems to pay off except to say, oh, you failed in bringing some of it back. Well, it's to show that Ethan Hunt doesn't follow the rules. He's always reckless. He always follows his own moral compass. And whether, you know, it looks dumb or not, he'll end up coming out on top because, hey, it's Tom Cruise. So there's the pharmaceutical CEO, head of this pharmaceutical company, McCloy. At one point, he's drugged. And I've totally lost the plot at this point. I don't understand. He's drugged when he gets in a limo. He sees that scientist from the beginning. He's still alive. That ends up being Ethan. Like, was this just so we could get more exposition about what the plot was? Yes. They're telling us the same thing again. Cruz has to find out what we already heard 10 times before. And that is that, yes, they tell us that the pharmaceutical company, Biosite, at this point, they have the cure, but the villains have the disease. And so there's going to be some kind of trade. But the villains don't have the disease. No one has the disease. Only the company has a few vials of the disease left. All they have is the Bellerophon. Yeah, I mean, but they don't know that. What they don't know that Cruz is able to deduce once he breaks into Biosite is that the scientist, in order to get it onto the plane, didn't put it in his suitcase he put it in his body. And so when they killed him, they killed their opportunity to have the virus. So uh, I guess it didn't really need anybody. <laughs> and let's talk about how he gets into Biosite, because this is supposed to be like the big heist moment that we saw with the CIA last week. The wire stuff here, they're setting up the impossible mission. You got to get through this tower. He falls even further. He falls 42 floors. Yeah, that's all he does. He just falls this time. You know, I did like, though, that Anthony Hopkins said this isn't mission difficult, it's mission impossible. Yeah, but this one seemed a lot easier. You just fall and then take the bungee off. Yeah, I feel like this one is easier, even though it's more grandiose. It's a larger scale thing. But yeah, the heat sensor and the floor pressure sensor. I mean, that was, they had to cut through lasers. That took some ingenuity. Here, it just takes Tom Cruise dropping and pulling the cord at the right moment. Luther hacks in to open the vents for 40 seconds. It's, it's not exciting. I don't think that's supposed to be the showcase. I think the showcase is what happens when he gets in. That's why I think the breaking in is rather perfunctory. No, no I agree. It, it, Sean knows how they're going to strike. He's there and prepared. He is wanting to, what, confront Ethan? Kill Ethan? No, he wants to get the virus because he doesn't have it. And kill Ethan. Yeah, yeah. I, he's going to kill Ethan, is my point. Yeah, he wants to get the virus. We all understand that from the 10 times he's told us. But yes, <laughs> what I don't quite understand is his relationship with Ethan. He wants to kill him or flaunt that he has Thady Newton's character or something. All of the above. Okay, yeah. all right. Which none of it's been set up. None of it's been established. We've just... Everything's been established. Everything's no! been established eight times. It's been established, Jacob. No, no, no. Yes, we've been told things. There's nothing that's made me buy into it. That is what I'm saying. Okay, there's a difference between saying it's not established and it's not established to a degree that you would like. To a degree that is believable. That makes me care. It's not sophisticated, but it's there. It's broad strokes. Again, it's Wu. And you like Wu, right? I mean, you liked Wu when he made Hong Kong movies. I assume you don't speak Mandarin. So 
it probably played because you didn't hear this dialogue. But now that you have to hear this dialogue and see it from our own language, it's pretty awful. And I do wonder, like, I I, I don't want to make any stereotypes or anything, but I we've called out. I don't know what his level of understanding English was. Like, how do you direct English speaking actors if you don't have a grasp on the language? I do feel like that may have had an effect on this film. Like so much of this. He spoke very eloquently on the commentary and the bonus features. Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't know what went wrong then. Thick accent, but it wasn't like some of them that I've heard where they were trying to think of every word in English for what they're trying to say. But I like this shootout, and I remember my reaction. I saw this with a friend of mine who I worked with, and we, at that time we were both computer repairmen, and out on the market, like very new, were LCD monitors. And we were drooling over those at our day job. They were like 2000 2500 for a 15-inch monitor. And we see this together, and we're both just shocked to shit. The most scary thing I've ever seen in a movie at that time was they blow them up in this movie. They have these $2,500 monitors and shoot them all up. I'm like, there's Hollywood for you. What confused me is how long, gosh, how many times are we going to say everything takes so long? But when Ethan goes to destroy Chimera, while the bad guys are walking in with their guns, he is taking his time to destroy. Don't you guys find this at all moody? No. No, because it seems all artificial. There's there's no reason for him to take six minutes to eject each gun to destroy the virus. Like, there's no story reason for that. It is all artificial tension. Yeah, literally. You know, I write copious notes. All I wrote during this, John Woo, two guns, slow-mo, BS fighting. That's it. That was my total note. There is the triple Lutz flip that Cruz does when he parachutes out the window. Again, he's become a superhero here. I actually thought that was a well-done stunt. I mean, when Naya injects herself with the virus, and I got a different reading from this than what Wu said. Wu said she did that out of love for Ethan and to protect Ethan. I took it as she realized she was going to be killed one way or another. The only way to be alive is to have something they want, which is her blood now, because she has the last of the virus in her. Yeah, but she basically has a very, maybe her worst scene with Cruz is right before he realizes he can't take her with her. She says, I don't know why I did it, but I had to protect you. I mean, it's largely implied she largely did it because they were about to shoot Tom Cruise. And so she made a a stupid distraction. I mean, that is a pretty stupid distraction. Well, she would give her life for her love. Because their cars spun around in circles. Movies work in shorthand. Yes, it's weird that they are so in love after such a brief meeting, but we'd buy it in a rom-com. I'm giving it to it here. You might buy it in a rom-com. You're the rom-com fan. It it just doesn't, I don't care about these characters. That's the problem with this movie. Yeah, I I feel like it's poorly established. You're insulting rom-coms by saying it's all the same thing. They didn't try very hard to establish a believable romance. They told us the romance was going to be even more ridiculous than the action. And you either go with that or don't. And what I'm hearing is Arnie is... And we're absolutely not. I mean, you can't drag me towards believing into this romance. There's no way. Oh, but I'm being dragged into this climax. Like, I I can't believe the movie's still going after the shootout. There's still, like, a good half hour. And, again, I am shocked to shit, Jacob, to hear you railing on this when you claim to like John Woo. What do you like about John Woo? Tell me a thing about his style that you like, because everything here is Woo to the T, 
which sounds like a rap song, and <laughs> you're hating it. I, I, I'm going to tell you what it is, because I was wondering this, and... I don't know if this is racist, but if this was a Hong Kong film and it was Jet Li or Jackie Chan, Steven Seagal or Jean-Claude Van Damme, I could go with all the kung fu we're going to get. It's Tom Cruise. I don't buy it. I don't buy Ethan Hunt. Is all of a sudden of a ninja spinning around on a motorcycle doing backflips, these kicks. I don't buy Tom Cruise in this role. So you're telling me that if it was a Hong Kong actor or really any other actor that had action movie cred. If it was an established martial artist. So that is a little bit racist. Tom Cruise studied martial arts for this. He learned those moves. For this, he's not a martial artist like Jean-Claude Van Damme. No, he's better in this movie than Jean-Claude Van Damme would be. (laughs) I don't know. Jean-Claude would never have that hair. (laughs) He had worse hair in the 80s than this. I mean... Well, this is 2000, though. Here's the interesting thing, is sometimes things make sense within their cultural context, and when you remove it and transplant it somewhere else, I find this often in, like, J-horror as well. It's like, when I'm watching it in the Japanese, it seems to fit within the culture, but when you try to put it in America... It can oftentimes look goofy. Like, it can look like mistranslation. You know, English is what they call it. It's where it doesn't work well together. It sounds funny. And I think there is something to that. Watching these American stars say these lines and do these Hong Kong stereotypical flips and such, it just doesn't play the same. And it's not all Cruz, but for me, a lot of it is the noxiousness that he presents every time he's on screen. I just, I can't stand him in this movie. But Jacob, you admitted Face Off has some fun to it, and... Yet there you have Nick Cage and John Travolta, who are much worse at this doing this type of thing. Are they worse? You're telling me Face Off is worse than this? Because I'll never watch it. By far. I don't know. Face Off. I I don't want to get into a Face Off retrospective here, but that film goes so ridiculous so quickly. More than this? It's more ridiculous than this movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get to a prison where they have magnetic boots, so they get locked down. It's a crazy film. Oh, my God. I can't imagine it. I don't (laughs) think I could survive it, honestly. It really is something else. And you, again, like you said, you go with it or you don't. I could go with it more than this. I, I don't think that's a good film either. It's got its moments, just like this one does, but... You seem to be accepting face transplants more than Tandy Newton's love for Tom Cruise. Yeah, They establish it much better. Yes, I will agree with you there. I will never buy this romance. Yeah, and I'm with Jacob on that. This romance is horrible. This scene where they say goodbye to each other and she's left with the bad guy, it it should have been cut. I mean, if they cut all of that from the movie, this should have been three minutes that's cut as well. It's painful to watch these people say these lines. And... I know why they didn't cut it. It was because they considered the entire heart of this movie to be the romance. They wanted to show Tom Cruise caring about somebody other than himself, caring about somebody more than himself. I'm thinking they're reacting to criticism from the first film. But in addition, beyond what their defense is, I'm enjoying their romance. I like that scene. I'm surprised he left her there and didn't try to take her with him on the parachute. Yeah, couldn't he just pull earlier or do something? It just seems like he can do everything else. He could have gotten her out of there. But, you know, they had to make it exciting. She's injected herself. She's got 20 hours. I think it's funny. He sets the timer and then we never go back to see how much time we have left. 
We're just always told she only has a little bit more time, but we actually don't get a ticking clock. They don't show that watch a few times. I thought I saw the watch every once in a while. I mean, not during the big action, but you get Luther. I mean, Luther's the one checking the watch. Is he? Yeah, he's trying to get the GPS back up so they could find her because she still has that chip in her. And she's just like, Ambrose just let her go because she's just like wandering around in the wilderness and is on a cliff to jump off and I guess commit suicide. What they say is, and I wonder if it's in the three and a half hour cut, they dropped her off in Sydney because when she hits the 20 hour mark, she'll be Typhoid Mary. And the one part of this relationship that I don't like between Ethan and Naya is that Ethan somehow psychically knows. He says Naya will take care of Naya. He knows that at 19 hours and 59 minutes, since she's terminal anyway, she'll kill herself before she can infect other people. And that's why she's wandered from Sydney to a cliff. And it does feel like it's taken 20 hours. I mean, we're going to get all these shots of the waves crashing as this climax is going on. It's, it is ridiculous. The bad guys think that she is about to infect all of Sydney, 17 million people or something like that. I think you should have kept it there. To have the climax actually be she might just jump off the cliff and save everyone, I don't know that I would stop her, quite frankly. I mean, if we can't get the cure, that's probably the right decision to do. I agree. I think they were going to let her do that if they didn't have the cure. But their hope is to find her and get the cure so that they can have it both ways. Sure, sure. And, I mean, we kind of want that. I mean, I I don't want an innocent woman to die. I certainly like Fanny Newton. I want her to be healthy again. I don't want her to end up with Tom Cruise. But I want her to be alive at the end of this movie, and of course she will be. So we have a very protracted climax so that Cruz can rush that cure back to her. And this is the only part of the movie where I kind of felt it went on too long, was I liked the stunts. I liked the motorcycle spinning around on their front wheel. I liked Tom Cruise doing the gun spin on the motorcycle and blowing up the car. Aiming the gun with the rear view mirror. I, ugh. It's Tom Cruise's fault that I'm not buying into this. That's what I'm saying. I buy it. I like the way it's filmed. I like the slow-mo. I laugh because here's the doves, including a CGI dove that is incredibly obvious. Yeah, I was waiting for the doves. I knew they were coming. And my only thing is here, I dare say it's a sickness of riches. If any of these scenes alone had been part of the climax, I'd have gone with it. But we have, what, is this, I think a 30-minute shootout at the end from the time Ethan breaks into this weird, evil layer. I don't... I have no idea where that is. I was like, yeah, what is it? It's, it feels like it's it's some kind of, like, satellite bunker something or rather? I don't know what it is. Maybe like a fallout shelter? Far enough away from actual Sydney, where apparently they're just a drive away if they drop Tandy off, but far <laughs> enough away that rapid machine gun fire and car explosions bring no authorities. Yeah, and if she's about to, you know, have an outbreak, I would want to be further away, quite frankly, if everyone's going to get infected and she's going to be so contagious. They have the cure. They don't care. Infect them. Yeah. How much cure do they have? The thing is, you have to be cured within 20 hours. You're going to have to get your salesman out there real quick to push this <laughs> pharmaceutical. No, no. They want millions to die first to create the demand. And then after that, when the entire world is freaked out about it, like America was with Ebola last year, that's when they come in and go, we have the cure. Give us millions. 
I mean, they still have to go through FDA approval. That's going to take five years itself. (laughs) This is a bad plan, just like this is a bad movie. Yeah, it is what it is. I can go with it. It's it's no more ridiculous than the Bond climax. I, I will say that. It does feel very James Bond in that way. I, I'm going to try to find a compliment here. I kind of like the way they take out that kind of boring bad guy that uh, Hugh, yeah, you know, they bring back the latex mask. It was obvious what was happening. I mean, mm-hmm. but I still kind of enjoyed it. There's no way Tom Cruise is going to get shot in this. It's one too many mask change. Just like everything. There's so much excess. They do the mask thing too much in here. All of it's too much. I actually liked that they used the masks so conveniently. The masks were no longer special. If you had access... To endless realistic masks, wouldn't you use them at every turn as well? <laughs> I'm wondering, did he pack them in his parachute? Like, he's just got a hue mask ready to go? It's kind of weird. It's very dark, man, and I like it. It's so stupid, but just as a moment, a moment in a ridiculous sea of moments, it's kind of fun. I don't have a lot of other compliments there. I did kind of like that they did the Millie Vanilli when it's finally Sean versus Cruz. And they, like, race at each other on bikes and then jump up in, like, chest butt. You remember Millie Vanilla <laughs> used to do that. Go watch the Girl You Know It's True video. They would run in place and then they would do it. Yeah, it was awesome. That's right. I mean, I see it in my head. That was like a 90s thing, the chest thump. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. That was, like, one of the big things from the trailer for this was that jump from the motorcycles where they grapple each other. Oh, yeah. It's so silly. But again, if, if there is credible action actors i would have been going with this if this was vin diesel and this was called fast and furious i'd probably be enjoying this but i don't buy cruise that is the interesting thing jacob i got to point out is that you love fast and the furious 6 i would put this on par with the ridiculousness of that so that you love one and detest another it's hard to understand the disparity like it is cruise it is cruise i just don't buy him as this Superman, I don't buy this love story. I don't care about Ambrose and his doppelganger with Cruz. I like I don't care about anything here. And yet the Superman thing you like is the John Woo trademark. And you say Tom Cruise is unbelievable. He didn't do all his own stunts in this film, but he did the vast majority of his own stunts, including the Kung Fu kicks and that big spin. There's a difference between being able to do a stunt and Again, being a credible martial artist. I, it's like saying Keanu Reeves is, is, is a great martial artist because he did some kung fu in The Matrix. You don't buy it. You buy it because maybe it's a computer program and they have a story reason. I just don't buy that this is the same Ethan Hunt that I saw last week. Yeah, I'll give Cruz this much of a compliment. He's always committed. I always feel like when Cruz makes a movie, he works his ass off to do the best that he can. But sometimes the best is not good enough here. And And I think what it is is that this is the corrective. You know, this was the movie to prove he still had what he had in the 80s. You know, he was still that Top Gun whatever, that he hadn't sailed off to Kubrick land and Magnolia and become this weird, twisted, dark actor. Well, really, it's a career recovery after Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> yeah, and Magnolia. I mean, he got an Oscar nomination out of that, but not everyone enjoyed watching him tame the... I think that <laughs> this was an overcorrection to, to remind you that he was still youthful and funny and invincible and all of that, but it's way too far. It it has turned him into a parody of Tom Cruise. And ironically, on the Blu-ray is a bonus feature, which is a parody of Tom Cruise, done by 
Ben Stiller. Yeah, they are friends, so it's a loving parody. I've seen him do Cruise a few times and view different. They were even supposed to do a Hardy Boys movie together. I guess they did do Tropic Thunder, right? Yeah, I mean that's the only film like post two thousand five of Cruises that I've truly enjoyed is Tropic Thunder. And I didn't even know it was him the first time. I enjoyed him in a latex mask in that film. Or at least a latex nose or something. It was latex arms, latex nose, latex hair. But, I mean, yeah, I honestly didn't know it was Tom Cruise until, like, like halfway through the movie, I leaned to Marjorie. That's Tom Cruise, son of a bitch. And better hair than in this film. And this hair's real. Everything here's real, and you're not buying it. Stuart, I understand you hating this. Jacob, I'm lost. But we get the final... And Naya's record is cleared. She's cured. I mean, that's more important. She gets the <laughs> she gets the vial that's going to save her life. I'm not sure how many seconds she had left, but she looks pretty perky seconds after injection. Hey, it's a magic cure. It cures all flus. They, yet that's not enough. They have to have a special plague to make even more money. But this is where I realize she's just a Bond girl. And if you've enjoyed any James Bond relationship, especially the ones that are supposed to have emotional resonance, this one goes right along there. When I see Tom Cruise and Naya going off for a romantic night, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more, I'm like, yeah, she's not coming back. She's she's an MI girl is what I'll call her. And I bet there's another one next time. And Claire was the one last time. Sort of. But yeah, I'll miss Dandy. Again, I, I would have liked to have seen her... Use these charms, maybe with a different foil, in a maybe literal remake of To Catch a Thief, rather than John Woo's To Catch a Thief. And John Woo says this is supposed to be a, a remake of Notorious. Yeah, same era, same kind of Hitchcock movie. Hey, they use the words To Catch a Thief in dialogue. I thought they were telling me something. <laughs> Not his first language. So, Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Mission Impossible to Jacob? No. <laughs> there, there's my slow motion. Not recommend. Look, the problems start off pretty much at the beginning. It, it's based on a love story that I never buy into. They have escalated Ethan Hunt's character to a level that, again, it took John McClane four or five movies to get to this super stature. Here they've gone from the first film to the second one. I just don't buy Tom Cruise in this role. I don't buy this romance. They fail to establish this Ambrose character as like a, a worthy nemesis for Cruise, his doppelganger. All of that fails. And then I'm going to pull out the artistic douchebaggery thing. Like, forget about the doves. I don't care that there's doves in this. The, the slow motion and the crashing waves and just so much unnecessary stuff in this film. I I liked the film last week. I It's not one I'm going to go watch all the time. If it's on TV, maybe I'll sit down and watch a few minutes of it when it gets to one of those action scenes I like. But this was hard to get through. I wanted it to end. I wanted to hit fast forward and get through it, even during this big action-packed climax, because I didn't care about anyone. And that's the big problem. Fast and Furious... I kind of like those characters. They got me to care about Tyrese in number six, and that's why I went with it. Here, I don't care about anyone, so I'm not going to go with this action. I'm not going to go with this romance. Not recommend. Stuart. And I said last week I felt like it was a franchise finding its footing, trying to rework a TV show about an ensemble into a star vehicle for the biggest star of his decade. Here, it is more confident, but it is also further away from the film I hope to get. This is all Cruise all the time. If you want to see Tom Cruise be invincible and do impossible stunts, 
in a John Woo fashion. I think you're going to enjoy this movie. I think it is well made as that. My problems with it are that I never want that. To me, that is as toxic as Chimera, and I, I just, I want the antidote. Whenever I watch an action movie that's like this, it gives me hives. It just, I break out. I can't stand it. It's just not my aesthetic. So I'm going to say mild, not recommend, even though I hated it. I hated it. I actually would just say it's a mile not recommend unless this is your thing. I just think it's a stupid movie that I really hated. Some people are going to like because they like stupid action movies. I know Woo's not coming back next time. I hope that they can move away from this. I know that it will still be a cruise star vehicle next week, but I really hope there'll be someone to challenge him on screen. Someone to rein in this rampant ego that just is just chewing up the scenery here. It's, it's too much cruise. It's too much Woo. I'm battered and bruised. Mild not recommend. And hopefully they'll bring in a new hairdresser. Yeah, please. Well, I do think that you'll be in luck next time with that reined-in ego, because there's a lot of time between each of these installments, and between Mission Impossible 2 and Mission Impossible 3, Cruz had jumped on a couch or two. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Again, every time he gets in trouble, he makes one of these. This is... This is the thing that he knows that will always bring the fans back, or he hopes anyway. Yeah, so I do wonder if you'll get a more humble one next time. I can't remember. That's one I've only seen once. But for this film, recommend. Absolutely recommend. This is one where we are so far apart. I'm really trying to understand the viewpoint of my co-hosts, and I'm just not there. I think that in regards to summer blockbuster action films, this is in the upper echelon. Now, you take certain things with summer blockbuster action films. You take shorthand character development. You take convenient relationships. You take unfallible heroes who are going to be your stars. But this goes back to the days of Arnold and Stallone and, yes, Van Damme. And, Stuart, I know those are a couple actors you don't necessarily like. Yeah, everyone I hate. <laughs> I'm sure, great. Take me back, please. But I liked them. Millions upon millions of people worldwide liked them. Sure. And I think that Cruz is carrying on that tradition. He may not have the muscles. He's cut, but he's not built. But he's doing the stunts himself. He's bringing that charisma. And, yes, the hair... I got over it in five minutes, Jacob. Five minutes of, wow, that's bad, and all of a sudden I'm fine. But this is perhaps John Woo's best American film, and it's an improvement over the first one in that it has a coherent story. So, yes, I recommend Mission Impossible 2, and I know it's not perfect, it's nowhere near, but for the type of movie it's trying to be, it completely succeeds in being that movie. Well, let me ask you this. I know, Arnie, you were much cooler on the Bond franchise, but keep in mind, Pierce Brosnan is rolling out. That we're in his era now. You gotta admit, every single Pierce Brosnan Bond movie is better than this. Fuck no. Fuck no, that Denise Richards one? Fuck that film. No, that one was okay. No, Tomorrow Never Dies was the horrible one. Yeah, that one is not better than this. I didn't recommend all those films. I recommended this. Ergo, not all better. Well, you know, the one thing that Bond has over Ethan Hunt is a sense of humor. Cruz thinks he's funny. He smiles a lot, but... Well, you see that dentist work he's had? He's got to show those teeth off. I just want wit. 
Am I crazy for wanting a little wit, a little humility, a little play? I just, I don't know. Bond does it better for me. Bond hits that spot that Ethan, I just don't think can reach. And I understand this to be a complete ripoff of the Bond films by the second film. I mean, yes, Bond was back. Tom Cruise is taking a TV ripoff of Bond and making a cinematic ripoff of Bond. Maybe it's the Limp Bizkit version of the MI theme. <laughs> Maybe it's the level of cool. Oh, that awful Metallica song at the end credits. This is like what? Load, reload era Metallica. It's awful. That is Nickelback bad. You don't like Nickelback, Arnie? Actually, I like Nickelback, but... <laughs> <laughs> I knew you had to. I know a lot of people who love Metallica and hate Nickelback, and I've listened to this song, and I'm like, how can you even tell a difference? <laughs> uh, it's all bad. I turned it off as soon as the credits started. I didn't even hear the song. Well, here's the thing. I thought there might be a post credit scene where they go, oh, here's your next mission like they did last week. That's why I sat through these credits. I knew that you guys would see it and tell me if I missed it. There was no <laughs> way I was sitting through a new metal version of the Lalo Schiff Runs theme. The Metallica song does end and I fast forwarded through it and there was the bonus feature of the Metallica video on the DVD proudly proclaiming this was the first song Metallica had ever written for any movie. Yeah, and the only one no one ripped off on Napster. <laughs> <laughs> Zero downloads. It does get into the Limp Bizkit single with the MI theme riff, but no after credit scene. But maybe it is just that vibe. Maybe I like the MI theme more than the Bond theme, and I feel like these are rapid cut, just more frenetic films than any of the Bonds of this era were. Maybe it's because you don't have Madonna fencing, but for whatever reason, I enjoy Mission Impossible more than I like Bond. What about John McClane? Because I think every Die Hard movie, including that bad one in Russia, is better than this movie. Absolutely not. No. Yeah, I'm, ooh, that's tough, but I'm going to agree with you, Stuart. I, I would do a good day to Die Hard before this again. Mm-hmm. No, no. And the difference being, as Tom Cruise calls him, the woo. I think that this film has an artistic visual style, the ballet of violence that elevates it above so many comparatives you're making, including Bond. There's never been a Bond film as choreographed as this. I think the action is better in Die Hard, and I think the character is better in Bond. I just, I don't know what Mission Impossible is bringing. I can't figure out what niche it's filling that those two don't do better. I think that by taking themselves somewhat seriously, it's right there an improvement over some of the Brosnan Bond stuff. But... Again, I think this is better than one, and my memory is three is better than two. So maybe you guys are just going to hate each one more. It shouldn't be hard to be better than this. I'll put it that way. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, who's doing it again? It's J.J. Uh, Abrams. Yeah, I can't imagine him screwing it up this badly. Did you see Star Trek Into Darkness? Or the last season of Lost? <laughs> I didn't watch Lost to the end, but I understand that he's maybe not great with conclusions, but I'll be up for it. I'm up for the mission. I did not like this movie largely because I didn't like Wu, but with Wu gone and Tom Cruise doing what 
JJ wants him to, it will be a different experience. And again, I'm hoping it will be a confident franchise soon. We will be back with that in two weeks. And next week, we're going to go back to one of those 80s stars whose name I invoked. Arnold is back. He threatened he'd be back, and he is. Oh, my God. Uh, At least he's not coming back as our governor. (laughs) When's this going to be more damaging? I can't figure it out. This thing looks horrible. I got to say, Terminator Genesis, even the spelling of Genesis, it just, (laughs) ooh, the hives that I got off Mission Impossible 2, they're growing, man, but I will go see it. (laughs) I'm excited. I think the trailers look pretty good. I wish they hadn't spoiled the John Connor reveal in that second trailer. You think the trailers look good? Yeah. You're the only person I know that says said that. The shock of seeing Arnold with that gray hair and the wrinkles, that isn't enough to discourage you? The, the CGI when he bounces down the road, it's, ooh. Yeah, it's a staggering, okay. They're going to have to sell me on it, but I like the plot. I like the Back to the Future 2-ishness of what they're doing here. That they're basically going into Biff's future world now. I'm kind of going with it, so. It's been a while since we covered this franchise, too. This is one of the first that I ever did for Now Playing. So, you know what? I think this one earns it. I think I'm going to go back and watch all four again to prepare. And maybe that will help or maybe it will hurt it. Ooh, skip salvation. (laughs) No, I think I got to see that one the most because I really don't remember it. I can close my eyes and replay the first three. I've seen them so much. But I do need to visit the director's cut of Salvation and really see that before I see this new one. What about Saracana Chronicles, whatever the hell it was called? I've got enough blowback from not watching it that I'm still not going to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Damn, because I'm not going to watch it either. (laughs) I won't diss it anymore. How about that? Yeah, we don't know. It could have been all right. I watched like two episodes and it looks like what they did with Genesis. She time travels and they go into alternate timelines. You know what? If it's on Netflix, I'll try a few episodes. That's what I'll do. All right, but we'll be prepared. We'll be back next week with Arnold. God help me. And until then, mission accomplished. The president has invoked ghost protocol. We're shut down. No satellite safe house support or extraction. Thank you for listening to Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode in the Mission Impossible retrospective series. Seems we have a lot to talk about, don't we? Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another Mission Impossible review culminating in a week of release review of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Have you been away so long you've forgotten how good we are? Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews of hundreds of other films, including the Avengers films, Rambo, the Ocean's Eleven films, the Batman movies, and more. I am gagging for it. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums, where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Where else am I going to go? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post written movie reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Oh, that was nothing. That was fun. That was fun.
I can understand you're very upset. You've never seen me very upset. Now Playing is an independent podcast with no sponsors or ads. It's donations from listeners like you that keep Now Playing on the air. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. You can give money by clicking the support link at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Are you in or not? Of course we're in. Now Playing is edited by Heath, Anthony, Stephen, and Arnie. Well, this is not mission difficult, Mr. Hunt. It's mission impossible. Difficult should be a walk in the park for you. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Is he serious? Always. (laughs) The movie discussed in this podcast and the music used are the property of their copyright holders and no infringement is intended. My lawyers are going to have a field day with this entrapment jurisdictional conflict. Maybe we'll just leave the courts out of this one. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I don't have to tell you what a comfort anonymity can be in my profession. (laughs) It's like a warm blanket. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. We were unprepared, in the dark, disavowed. And the only thing that functioned properly on that mission was this team. I don't know how we ended up together. I'm glad we did. IMF Mission Commander, played by Anthony Hopkins, has a new mission for Ethan Hunt's team. What team? Yeah. (laughs) You mean Ethan Hunt and his ego and his hair. (laughs) Oh, that hair. Oh, my God, the hair. That's going to be a half hour of this podcast is talking about that hair. (laughs) And had that wire broken, he'd be really dead. Seeing that is great, but I also love... Seeing that he could have been dead is great. (laughs) Yeah, you might want to rephrase that slightly. Or not. Maybe that's exactly what you meant. I'm enjoying just his charisma and screen presence during these scenes. I'd have to go back to Cocktail to find him in a more annoying movie. I love Cocktail. What? (laughs) You're kidding me. I can accept you liking this movie, but Cocktail... (laughs) One of the worst things on earth. Oh, it's a great movie. I love. He works at a TGI Fridays and thinks he's a badass and sleeps with Elizabeth Shue, who goes topless. Oh, this is a horrible film. No, we'll have to review it someday. And I don't know. I haven't seen it in like seven years. Last time I saw it, it made me weep. Oh my god, it's incredibly bad. Incredibly bad. I'm pro cocktail. All right, moving on. Yeah, let's let's talk about the incredibly bad hair. Hair. <laughs> You're wait, still on wait, the hair. Again? Can we talk about anything else? Wrong emphasis. I said let's focus on the incredibly bad here. I mean, this is where <laughs> he finds out. And yet, once we find out about Chimera and 
What's what's the other Bellophone or Bellerathon? Bellerathon. Yeah. Bellerathon. Bellerathon. Fawn. Fawn. At P H O N. Fawn. Bellerathon. Okay. It doesn't sound like a pharmaceutical. I stand by that. (laughs) He's bringing that charisma, cruisisma, maybe? And oh, that's bad. He's yeah, you, Arnie. Yeah. yeah, well, I just can't help it. On the, that's Howard the Duck level. On the bonus features, <laughs> four times they use the same clip of Tom Cruise going, he's the man. He's the woo. So mm. if he can say that, I'm going to say Cruzisma. <laughs> You're making this movie. You're making me hate this movie even more. Cruzisma. I agree. He's full of it. <laughs> Well, we'll be back with that next week. Nope. Two weeks. No? What the fuck are we reviewing? <laughs> Terminator. Oh, Terminator. Terminator. A film that may be worse than this one. Not according to James Cameron. I but... saw that. Yeah, bullshit. They pay him off. Bull, I agree. That's bullshit. That's a bullshit thing. Can I leave that in as a blooper? <laughs> sure. You guys good on the record with that? Yeah, I'm good on the record with <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, sure. Come and sue me, James. Yeah. <laughs>